To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You know, in five years, we've gone from trade war to tech war to early stages of a new Cold War. That high-octane fuel can be easily ignited by a spark. Taiwan, South China Sea, China's unlimited partnership with Russia, global recession. Any one of those are sparks that when you are embracing increasingly intense uh, false narratives could lead to an accidental clash. Stephanomics here, the podcast that brings you a new year in the global economy and a new year's aspiration that we end 2023 in better shape than we've begun it. Maybe I'm sitting on the wrong side of the Atlantic, looking at the wrong kind of grey sky. Everything's just feeling a bit grim. But we're going to break out of that gloom now to offer you some fresh insight into the central issue of our time. One I make no apologies for returning to on a regular basis, China's place in the global economy and its relationship with the US. Stephen Roach is a longtime contributor to the China debate. He has a new book out and you just heard a taste of my conversation with him. But before we get to that lofty discussion, our senior US economic policy editor, Chris Anstey, wants you to look inside the box your new trainers came in. You've probably never given much thought to desiccants. Not many have. But last year, those little packets you find in a box with a new pair of shoes were at the center of an international trade row. So a desiccant desiccant is um, the little packet that is included in, in products that are shipped. And it's intended to take moisture out of the air. So for instance, it, it, uh, prevents mold buildup or humidity uh, getting to a point where it can cause damage to the product. That was Bruce Maine, president of a small safety consulting firm in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It turns out that China proposed a new production standard for desiccants last year that critics like Maine say would have created a huge burden on manufacturers around the world. Suddenly, Anyone making anything with a desiccant inside would be forced to worry about those little gel packets complying with a new standard. Shoemakers, for sure, but also producers of food, electric products, textiles, artware, and leather goods, among others. The battle over this most obscure packaging item illustrates China's growing ambitions, not just to dominate manufacturing, but to have a much stronger say in how products are made and traded around the world. Put it another way, the next round in the great global trade war between China, the US, and Europe may be waged by wonky government bureaucrats and design engineers over global standards. Here is Emily Taylor, an intellectual property lawyer who now heads Oxford Information Labs a cyber intelligence consultancy. 
the Chinese approach, which seems very daunting, very organised, long-term and patient. And in, in response, you know, it can feel like we need to up our game in the West, that China has understood that in many standards organisations, it's a numbers game. It's about putting people on planes or sticking people in a Zoom room and having lots and lots and lots of submissions. And, you know, in response to that, the West really seems to be scrabbling around at times and lacks that coordination. When most people use products and services, they don't give much thought to standards that govern how they're made. You might use the term gold standard or substandard, but what are standards? There are scores of different standard-setting bodies for everything from pharmaceuticals to electronics. These global standards organizations were developed over the past century and more by company representatives, technical specialists representing big buyers, and civic groups, basically insiders that got together and settled on the most efficient, cost-effective way to make things. Of course, the whole process has been dominated by the West, with an outside presence of American and European representatives. Now, enter China, which unsurprisingly wants a say in setting global standards rather than simply accepting what others have decided. Last year, the Chinese government put out a game plan for strengthening China's hand in standard setting. It's been dubbed China Standards 2035 which gives a clue of the target date that they are aiming at. Bruce Main, the Michigan safety consultant, shared concerns about China's designs on the lowly desiccant. Uh, those of us that were involved said, not certain it really matters what the desiccant is made of, or it just doesn't work. Is it effective in uh, doing what it's supposed to do in terms of pulling moisture out of a package or, or preventing uh, humidity from building up. And the size, the shape, the testing of a desiccant isn't necessarily something that we need a standard on. We certainly don't want to spend time, our time and energy trying to write those kinds of standards. So that's why we did not support that effort. In the end, U.S. representatives helped to kill off that desiccant proposal but it illustrates concerns for standards to potentially become used as a tool for influence. And it reflects broader worries in places including the U.S. and Europe about China's intentions. Probably the most contentious area of standard setting is the field of technology. Taylor, the intellectual property lawyer, has looked closely at China's rising role in standards development organizations. Last year, she set up a group called the DNS Research Federation to shine a light on standard setting as it applies to the Internet. Among the group's concerns is the way China is trying to push a new set of Internet protocols, or new IP, that differs significantly from the open approach that underpinned the original structure of the web. The fear is it could be a cybersecurity risk. Although surveillance takes place on the internet today, absolutely it does. There are many human rights violations. But the internet was not designed for surveillance. What we see with new IP is a network that is actually designed and optimized for surveillance, whether of a domestic population 
or through data sharing laws domestically, perhaps internationally as well. Some of the tactics deployed by China in standard-setting bodies have alarmed many observers, like when Chinese representatives show up in numbers in an effort to boost the chance of Chinese proposals winning adoption. But not everybody is convinced that China is wielding undue influence in standards. After all, Western nations do want China to continue to participate so that global companies don't have to deal with China's standards being different from other markets. Olya Kanievskaya is a fellow at Stanford Law School with a forthcoming book on standard setting in information and communication technology. She argues that Western stakeholders are a little bit premature in their dire assessments of China's recent forays into standard setting, given that Western nations still dominate the process. Standardization system that is open, that is consensus-based, that doesn't exclude stakeholders is the system that we need for the technology to work. So I would be very worried if such initiatives to exclude particular stakeholders, be it China, be it Huawei, be it particular European or American companies, if such initiatives would actually make it to standard-setting bodies and would be adopted by them. But especially when it comes to technology, there's increasing danger of two separate economic spheres developing. On one side, the West, with its own set of standards. On the other, China and other non-democratic regimes. The US and European Union last year set up a new cooperation forum called the Trade and Technology Council. One of the items on the agenda? You guessed it, coordinating on standards. Nothing dry about this subject. In fact, maybe it needs a desiccant. I'm Chris Anstey for Bloomberg News. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. 
their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So having had that brilliant micro-level example of the way China's role in the world is changing, we're going to go extremely big picture now with Stephen Roach, who will be a familiar figure to anyone listening who's taken an interest in the global economy and especially Asia over the past few decades. An economist, former chairman of Morgan Stanley, he is now a senior fellow at the Paul Tsai China Centre at Yale Law School. He's written a lot over the years about the future of the US and China, and that's the subject of his new book, Accidental Conflict, America, China, and the Clash of False Narratives. Stephen, very nice to have you on the show and uh, to see you again, if only um, virtually. We are seeing a lot of books about potential conflict between America and China, but what, what's your specific take? In the past five years, Stephanie, we've gone from a trade war to a tech war, to the early stages of a new Cold War, uh, a ominous escalation of conflict that did not have to happen had it not been for the false narratives that both nations embrace toward the other. So I guess we should dig into that a little bit. How do you see those false narratives developing and, and how do they affect their relationship going forward, do you think? Okay, let me, let me just answer that question in, in two parts. One, why do both um, nations have this um, penchant to embrace false narratives? And what are some of these key false narratives? Uh, my uh, thesis in answering the first one is that both nations are surprisingly vulnerable uh, in terms of their economic uh, prospects as well as their stature uh, as leaders in the world. And the politics uh, at play in both nations. And for example, you know, Joe Biden uh, gets elected um, uh, a couple of years ago, razor thin majority uh, in the Congress, but a strong bipartisan uh, anti China view that allowed him no wiggle room uh, to disengage from Trump's China policy. So uh, he, on his first day in office, uh, repudiated a number of Trump's most unpopular policies, like the border wall construction in Mexico, the Muslim travel ban. But he did nothing to change China, because if he had done that, he would have been skewered by his own party, let alone the Republicans. Xi Jinping has a similar political calculus, aspiring for great power status. Um, the U.S. Uh, is viewed as the greatest impediment to his um, uh, political uh, objectives of this nationalistic China dream. So both nations have strong motives to blame others for their own vulnerabilities. The second part of the question is, what are some of these false narratives? Uh, I have eight chapters in the book that detail false narratives split evenly between both sides of the conflict. Uh, the one I'll focus on 
uh, from the U.S. side is um, we blame China for our trade deficit. Nations have trade deficits because they don't save, uh, and the U.S. right now has the lowest domestic savings rate of any leading nation in history. And when you don't save and you want to grow, you import surplus savings from abroad, and you run massive current account or balance of payments deficits that drive multilateral deficits with many nations. In 2021, uh, the last year uh, we have full data for, the U.S. ran uh, trade deficits with 106 nations. China was the largest, but by no means the only one. But by blaming China for our trade deficit, just as we blamed um, Japan 30 years ago for very similar reasons, uh, I might add, uh, we are ducking the big issue that we need to address to fix our own vulnerable economy, and that is a shortfall of domestic saving, a classic false narrative. The Chinese side is you know, equally, if not even more culpable. Uh, the one I'll single out for you is China recognized now nearly 20 years ago that it needed to restructure, rebalance its economy and shift from uh, an economy that was reliant on uh, exports and investment to one that drew increasingly on uh, consumer demand. They haven't done that. They blame that on America's stated policy to contain China's peaceful rise. Uh, the U.S. does have a containment policy um, that is aimed directly at China, and that's a, um, you know, a, a key theme in many aspects uh, of my book. But America's efforts to contain China have literally nothing to do with China's own inability to rebalance uh, its economy uh, to be driven more by internal private consumption. China's dropped the ball on this for a number of reasons that I detail on the book, but by fixating on U.S. containment, they're guilty of a, an egregious false narrative uh, with respect to the U.S., I think as an economist, you've, you do more in this book, I think, than most people to, to show the interconnections between that great power rivalry and the macroeconomic imbalances that opened up between us and China once China's growth took off. And as you've just explained, you end up with this sort of co what you call a codependency um, with uh, the insufficient savings by the U.S., um, being being matched by this massive trade deficit and, if you like, excess exporting um, by by China. And you've just highlighted there, in a sense, the what each side has done wrong in, in failing to kind of get to grips with that. But I'm interested going forward. I mean, there is obviously an element of this, which is just about China getting stronger but continuing to be very different from the US in terms of its values and the kind of global order that it wants to participate in. Um, and the US increasingly thinking it should try and thwart that development, having kind of given up on the China becoming a more like the US. So I just wondered, how does that, that sort of classic view, which says, you know, the US tried was hoping that the China was going to become you know like Europe and it's not like Europe so now it has to just stop it being a, a you know providing a rival economic system for the world not so sure that the US wanted China to be like Europe I think the US wanted China to be like uh, America uh, and this is a 
I think, a hopelessly naive um, uh, expectation that was framed around the time of um, China's push for WTO membership um, that uh, took a, over a decade to negotiate finally uh, culminated um, uh, under, under President Clinton in uh, late uh, 2001. Uh, and his argument that he made to the Congress is, um, you know, if we don't allow China uh, to, uh, to join our system, uh, then others are going to benefit from China's extraordinary rise. And by binding China to uh, an American-centric trading system under the WTO, uh, its um, compliance with those rules would pretty much turn it into a system uh, that mirrored ours. That, that was just hopelessly naive. And this is a Washington failure, uh, as well as a European failure, and probably a Chinese failure as well, uh, lies at the heart of this conflict. Uh, the, the notion of coexistence, which is something that uh, Henry Kissinger, still as he's nearing 100 years old right now, continues to stress uh, as the ultimate um, uh, uh, resolution uh, for the U.S.-China conflict, uh, needs to be much more open uh, than it has been under this sort of false premise of mirroring uh, one system's values with the other. I was working at the U.S. Treasury just as that deal was being uh, finalized at the end of, end of the 90s. And I guess you know, the, the, the debate was had about whether it was realistic um, to expect the China to be on anything like that trajectory. I guess the question arises of what's the alternative? If you're Donald Trump or indeed some in the Biden administration, that was the sort of original mistake was to let China into the World Trade Organization. But I'm not, I'm not sure that you're saying that was a mistake. You just think we should have told ourselves a different story about it. I don't think it was a mistake at all because, you know, by engaging China and bringing China into the WTO, that was a, a powerful driver of, um, uh, of Chinese economic growth at that time and really powered its um, uh, export-led momentum. And from those exports, you know, income-constrained American consumers are able to expand their purchasing power over uh, low-cost and increasingly high-quality uh, Chinese goods. Um, China became the largest purchaser for a long time uh, of uh, U.S. Treasuries to enable us to fund our budget deficits. And the Chinese market, as our America's third largest and most rapidly growing export market over the last uh, 12 to 15 years. So there were huge benefits that occurred. And the, I think the mistake we made is that we wanted more. We expected China uh, to transform uh, its system in a way that uh, uh, matched not just um, our economic needs, but our political and social value system. And, you know, there, there was reason to hope that that was occurring um, under the sort of Deng Xiaoping model of uh, market-based socialism, where China was certainly taking on and opening up to a lot of Western values. But uh, then along came Xi Jinping, uh, 10 years ago, who uh, reversed course on, on virtually all of that count. And we've taken 
enormous exception to that. Listening to you, the way you describe uh, China's motivations and its different outlook on the world and indeed talk about coexistence, um, you know, many would say that the title of your book sounded a bit odd because it doesn't sound like the conflict is accidental at all. I mean, you have a new rival power in the world which has very different views of kind of basic notions of whether it's press freedom or uh, human rights, um, democracy, any of these things. I mean, it's sort of inevitable that, that they will come into conflict with the West, broadly speaking, who believe that these values are important, isn't it? Well, certainly um, two uh, very powerful nations, you know, one, the ruling hegemon, if you want to call it for lack of a better term, and the other a rising uh, superpower, there was always the possibility of, uh, of conflict uh, and friction. The concept of ac- accidental conflict says that, that by embracing false impressions, false narratives of the other, we build on these mistaken views that we harbor that are politically expedient for our own purposes. And the false narratives uh, collide, they duel with one another, and they have the potential to become the high-octane fuel uh, of conflict escalation. And again, back to the to the first sentence I, I uttered to you uh, today, and that is, you know, in five years we've gone from trade war to tech war to early stages of a new Cold War. That high-octane fuel can be easily ignited by a spark. Taiwan, South China Sea, China's unlimited partnership with Russia, who is now waging an unconscionable war, America's own vulnerabilities, global recession, which is a distinct possibility this year. Any one of those are sparks that when, when you are embracing increasingly intense uh, false narratives could lead to an accidental clash. I mean, just a few days ago, um, I saw a report, I'm sure as you did, of a, um, uh, a fighter jet over the a Chinese fighter jet over the South China Sea that came uh, extraordinarily close uh, to an American aircraft. Uh, accidents can happen. And big wars, world wars, have been started uh, by accidents in the past. And so I chose that title to express uh, that potential in the context of this uh, conflict. But those are genuine reasons why we might conflict with China. They're not, they're not false reasons. China wants to take back Taiwan uh, which, as far as we can see, does not want to be back in, as part of China. Um, it wants to have an unrivaled supremacy in East Asia, where we have, and the US has, powerful allies and security relationships. So is that a false narrative to be... That China does want to take over these things and we don't want to let them. That seems to be the sort of uncomfortable yeah, truth. Those are, those are legitimate areas of, of, of dispute. One side believes strongly in and as does the other. I, I'm not arguing that those are false. But what I'm saying is that the confluence of these false narratives makes dispute resolution over legitimate issues all but impossible. I do end the book, you know, with a, 
uh, a prescriptive approach to resolve disputes uh, in the context of a conflicted uh, relationship. The current architecture of engagement between these two uh, leading superpowers is completely dysfunctional. Um, the nations don't talk to one another. When they do talk, it's, you know, it's uh, Zoom calls or there was a three-hour plus meeting in uh, Bali uh, ahead of a, a G20 uh, uh, meeting in November that accomplished nothing. And I make a fairly detailed proposal for a new organization that I call a U.S.-China Secretariat, a permanent organization located in a neutral venue that uh, is empowered to address um, all aspects of the relationship uh, from trade and economics to technology, cybersecurity, uh, human rights, health, fully staffed by equal complements of Chinese and American professionals working full-time, 24-7, on all these and other aspects of the relationship to um, frame problems, uh, provide mutually authored uh, um, policy white papers, sometimes with dissenting views from one, another, uh, from, from one side or the other, but stressing a collaborative approach toward dispute resolution rather than the current contentious uh, approach that we have right now. This relationship needs a far more robust uh, platform for engagement, and this may not be the perfect uh, suggestion, but it sure as heck beats what we've got now. Well, it's interesting that, I mean, we've talked to quite a lot of people about this issue over the months, and they all, whatever direction they come from, they all end up with a version of what you're talking about as a way of starting to rebuild trust, because that's one of the things that we worry uh, has really gone by the wayside. I have, we're going to run out of time, but I had a, two more questions for you. And one of them, and it will sound a bit self-interested since I'm sitting in the UK asking this, but I wonder whether you did think there was a role for Europe in um, helping to reduce the false narratives and potentially rebuild trust and the reason I say that is although obviously the European Union has been if you like on the US side of many of these disputes it's also been much more reluctant than the US to see this as a, a zero-sum conflict and somewhere like Germany is obviously very torn about and very concerned about the possibility of a decoupling of the global economy. How do you see Europe's role? Is it completely just a bystander in this and how this relationship evolves? Or could there be something more constructive that Europe could contribute? Europe is certainly not a bystander. It's a, uh, you know, an important actor in the global economy, in the geopolitical arena, and does have... Um, I'd say more mixed feelings about um, uh, its relationship with China right now than is evident, uh, certainly in the United States. Um, the U.S. administration, however, has been putting a lot of pressure on its European allies to take sides in this dispute, and that's an uncomfortable uh, place for Europe uh, to, to be. But I think uh, Europe has uh, ample leeway to chart its own course with respect to China and to point out that some of the um, 
the issues that the U.S. takes uh, as such a um, uh, close to an existential threat uh, in the technology arena, for example, uh, are things that Europe is handling uh, very differently. And I would cite uh, the, uh, uh, the Huawei-centric U.S. fixation on the Chinese technology threat. Huawei uh, has, uh, still has a, um, uh, a significant presence in many European uh, telecommunications sectors. Uh, Huawei has been investigated assiduously by the UK, by Italy, and by other European economies, and the egregious threats of espionage that the U.S. just takes for granted through uh, Huawei's um, state-of-the-art 5G telecommunications infrastructure have never been uh, validated. There was one instance of a backdoor leak uh, in Italy a number of years ago uh, that Huawei was quick to resolve. The, the Italian telecommunications providers have actually increased their reliance on Huawei uh, since then. So I think that technology, which is such a, uh, a major aspect of the growing conflict between the U.S. And, and China, is one that the Europeans could play a very constructive role in mediating and pointing out, I, I would hope, a more constructive outcome. That's fascinating because, of course, there'll be lots of people very focused on this issue, clamouring as they listen to this uh, to say that that's a, that the, the European position represents a, a naive view uh, of, of Huawei. And uh, there's always that point that's made that even if it's not happened yet, you know, there is a legal requirement for any Chinese company, if, if asked, to provide information um, to the government, especially under Xi Jinping. That's been quite clear. Yeah, I, I think the idea of you know, trying to wall off one nation, one system's platform uh, for uh, from another uh, because of the, the difference in systems that we've addressed earlier is the you know, t- taking decoupling uh, to its most destructive endpoint. And I think we need to avoid that. My final question is a bit more personal, Stephen. I mean, as long as I've been thinking about the global economy and, and sometimes and writing or reporting about it, um, you have been uh, an observer and an analyzer of, of the global economy, but also US and China particularly, um, and having spent a lot of time uh, in, in Asia, obviously. Um, I just wondered whether, looking back, I mean, what have you changed your mind on? I mean, when you see how the world has evolved relative to what we might have thought, say, in the early 90s, um, how, how have you been surprised? Have you changed? I mean, you obviously have changed your view in some important ways, um, both with regard to US and China, in light of events. Yeah, I have. It's been a journey for me. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would say... Um, you know, the, the perch I had at Morgan Stanley for 30 years was really, um, you know, a, a great um, sort of learning experience for me. For the first half of that, I was U.S.-based, focused on the U.S. economy, which is something I did at the Federal Reserve prior to coming to Wall Street. And um, I was heading up the global economics team, and then along came the Asian financial crisis of the late 90s, uh, and, uh, you know, I'd been to Asia a lot and I'd been to China a few times, but I had no idea really what was going on inside. 
I had a hunch that China would really shape the end game of what was then uh, the worst and first crisis of globalization. Little did we know, but that's the way we thought of it then. And um, it quickly became evident to me that China was cut from a different cloth and would come out of the crisis um, uh, much better than the rest of Asia, especially uh, Japan, which had been the leader. And so I switched my, my role then. I became a global economist fixated on Asia, especially on rising China, and eventually moved to uh, Hong Kong and uh, headed up Morgan Stanley's Asian businesses. And you know, I was really convinced that China's uh, transformation along the lines of the Deng Xiaoping model was really going to uh, uh, lead to a powerful, unstoppable engine of a uh, new engine of, of global growth that uh, could, could benefit uh, the West as well as itself. And then, as I uh, indicated earlier, along came Xi Jinping, who's reversed uh, much of that with his fixation on ideology and control uh, that has had um, uh, limited, um, has limited the consumer-led rebalancing at a time when China needs it the most. China has an aging population, uh, and the working age population is already contracting. And so when you have a contracting working age population, to stay the course of growth and prosperity, you need an acceleration of productivity growth. That's the economist in me. And uh, under Xi Jinping, productivity growth is going the other way. And so China's in trouble, uh, and that has really been a, a tough pill for someone like myself, who has been a diehard China optimist to swallow. Stephen Roach, that's a hell of a note on which to end, but I think we will uh, try to do that. Um, thank you very much for your time and thanks for your book. Thank you, Stephanie. Great talking to you as always. That's it for Stephanomics. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, please rate us wherever you get this podcast and check out the Bloomberg News website for more economic news and views on the global economy. You should also follow at Economics on Twitter. This episode was produced by Yang Yang, Summer Sadi and Magnus Henriksen, with special thanks to Stephen Roach and Chris Anstey. Mike Sasso is the executive producer of Stephanomics. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.